message this morning, which is a very challenging one, challenging to my own heart, and I trust men challenging to you as well. I hope all of you men have your flak jackets on this morning. We are going to complete our little mini-study of the new husband in Christ, bouncing off, as it were, Paul's words in Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. You remember that last Lord's Day, we began to look very practically at how a Christian husband may fulfill this command of Paul. And I said to you in a very easy three-point outline, starting with the word L, that if a man is to practically flesh out his responsibility to his wife, he needs to be for her a lover, a lover. We saw that from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. And then we also saw last time that a Christian husband is to be a learner, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And we looked at those in great detail. And this morning we want to complete that little outline with the third L that practically sets a Christian husband on his way to being a godly man. And that is with the concept of his being a leader, a leader. I want you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That will catapult us into the dimension of what it means for a Christian husband to be a leader. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Two brief verses but an absolutely clear and profound summation of the duties of a Christian man as a leader. And if there is any clearer and more succinct summation of what it means for a man to be a leader in the Christian church, I don't know where it is. This portion of God's truth is so rich and so pregnant with wisdom, it almost staggers the mind. Let me see if I can break it down for you as we seek to use this passage as a springboard to a Christian husband's leadership in his home. The words that I just read to you from 1 Corinthians 16 are really easy to understand. There are five commands, five imperatives by Paul. He says that a leader can be defined in these five ways. First... A leader is always on the alert. A leader is always on the alert. Secondly, a leader never wavers from the truth. Thirdly, a leader leads like a man. The fourth imperative, a leader is a man of strength. A leader is a man of strength. And then imperative number five, a leader is one whose actions are all marked by love. 
A leader is one whose actions are all marked by love. Five principles, five imperatives, five commands. He's alert, he's standing on the truth, he acts like a man, he's a man of strength, and he's marked by love. And boy, would the Corinthians have needed to hear that message. You know, I trust a little bit about the church at Corinth. If any of you were to have read, and I'm sure most of you have, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you know that they were incredibly gifted. They had a lot going for them, but in so many other ways, they had so much a challenge as well. Paul tells them in the first three chapters that there were factions among them as they followed various leaders. They had questions about even the leadership and the apostleship of Paul, as he points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 9 and even all of 2 Corinthians, which is really a biblical defense of his leadership. They had lawsuits with one another, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in chapter 7 they had husband-wife relational problems. In chapters 8 through 10, there was an abuse of the weak-minded believers by those with a greater knowledge. They also failed to understand worship properly, and they did not know how to rightly utilize their spiritual giftedness in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And they misunderstood even the doctrine of the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. They even needed to be taught about their financial giving in 1 Corinthians 9 and 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The Corinthians had a lot to learn. And Paul, summarizing these thoughts, all of these things, wrapping it up in a crescendo of five clear imperatives. If there was ever a church before or since that needed some strong imperatives regarding leadership, it was the church at Corinth. And if there was ever a time to heed Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14, especially with regard to Christian manhood, it is today. We need to hear a word from God regarding our manhood. Now you hear a lot, frankly, both inside and outside the church today, about manhood. There are movements and actions and books and articles that are being written much today about the issue of manhood, and in every single one of them that I've run across, there may be some that I've missed, there may be some things that I've not availed myself of, but I've never seen a description of anything like this that Paul writes here. I've never even seen this verse referred to. And yet it is so clear. He says, number one, a Christian husband is always on the alert. That should mark the Christian leader in his home and in the church. He is always on the alert. In a word, he is a provider. He's a provider. You say, how so? Well, he's a provider because he provides the eyes and the ears for his family. He's the one who's watching out. You say, how do you derive that from this phrase, beyond the alert? Well, I derive that because the word alert means to stand watch. To stand watch. 
to stay awake, to be on your guard, not to be careless or indifferent or easily deceived. He's saying, keep your eyes open. Watch out for the enemy, for hostile influences. In fact, this word, this phrase, be on the alert, is used often by Paul and other biblical writers, and it's a military metaphor. It's, it's like a watchman standing on the wall of a city, and he's watching very, very carefully to the left and to the right and to the front and even behind to make sure that the city and its inhabitants are protected. Paul says, you ought to be, as a Christian man, a warrior, knowing that there's a spiritual battle going on. He knows full well that we're involved in hand-to-hand spiritual warfare. So he's saying, stay awake. You say, well, I understand that, but for what or whom are, t- are we to be on guard? Well, very practically this morning, I think it's three things. This is how we're to be on alert. Number one, we're to be on alert for all things spiritual. We're to be on the alert for all things spiritual. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He uses this same phrase about being on the alert. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What are we to guard? What are we to be the eyes and ears for? And the answer is a spiritual attack. All around us, we are being assaulted with things and ideas that are not true. We are constantly being led to believe something about God, about the Bible, about the church, or about our world in general that is a lie, that are not true. Now that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, to 5, that we should destroy every speculation and lofty thing raised up against what is true about God. And that we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And men, that is our primary responsibility. It is not our wife's responsibility. It is not our children's responsibility. It is not even ultimately the responsibility of anyone outside your home but you. You are the sole sentinel for your home. You are in charge. And believe me, the world is going to throw everything it can at you to assault your mind. Isn't that what Peter said when he said in 1 Peter chapter 5? Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Keep your eyes open. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Satan is very good, very cunning, and he will stop at nothing to assault your mind. And you are to be a provider. You provide the eyes and the ears for your wife, for your family. I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He uses the metaphor of being asleep and awake. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, others who are of the night or of the darkness, but let us be alert and sober. 
For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Be ready. Be vigilant. He says in Colossians 4.2, be on the alert. Stand guard. Look over all the city around you. Look at the city of your home and make sure that someone or something does not come in to attempt to destroy your life. You would do that if a robber came in. Why wouldn't you want to do that with things spiritual? Even Jesus himself in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37, says three times in that passage, be on the alert. And he was specifically referring to the time of his coming. He says, no man knows the time, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. So therefore, like a man on a journey who's put his slaves in charge of the house, he has the doorkeeper there because the doorkeeper is there to be on the alert. We are that doorkeeper, men. We are that doorkeeper. We are to be on the alert. We're to be ready. This came home to me so vividly recently. I was sitting down with my wife and we were sort of looking at our schedule and we were asking ourselves the question, what is the best use of our time and how can our kids be most involved with things like extracurricular activities like basketball and baseball and things like that? And as we just moved out of the basketball season and as they were very, very ready just to go into the baseball time, we looked at ourselves and we said, now wait a minute, this is going to intrude as it already has into our family worship. We're going to have day after day where we have practice and games and practice and games and piano lessons on Tuesdays and Awana on Wednesday and this on Thursday and that on Friday. Time out. Family worship is suffering. And so we must say no. We must rearm ourselves and I'm in charge and I say, I have to be on guard. I have to be the one to say that we will do this, but we will not do this. We will involve ourselves with this, but we will not involve ourselves in this because I have to make sure that I'm studying diligently all of the attitudes of my home, all of the spirituality of my family, and I must make sure that things spiritual take first place. We have to be careful. I have to provide the eyes and the ears. I have to be the mouthpiece to say, yes, we will do this, and no, we will not do that, because it encroaches upon our time together. We have to be spiritually maturing together as a family. A provider watches for any ungodly influences to enter his home. He's alert to any attitudes in his wife and children, and he begins to deal with them as they are first revealed. He provides the eyes and ears through his alertness as though he was a watchman on the wall seeing encroaching danger and he stands ready to sound the alarm to do battle. That's what it means to be a provider. That's what it means to be on the alert. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians and that's what God is telling us. You must provide the necessary fortitude spiritually against Satan's attacks. You're to be vigilant regarding all aspects of your home and family and all things spiritual. And not just all things spiritual. Let me add one that's very applicable to our day. Secondly, we need to be on the alert for all things sexual. 
We need to be on the alert for all things sexual. We need to make sure, men, that we know the Word of God so well that we know verses like Leviticus 18.20. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. We need to stay away from those people and those influences that would tempt us to sin sexually. That's how we need to be on the alert. Whether it's the television programs that you watch or the radio that you listen to or the conversations that you have or the things you read or the things you do or the things you think, be on guard. Be on the alert. Why? Why is this so important in our day? Because Proverbs 5.3 says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. We need to protect ourselves and our wife. We need to protect her against sexual temptation, whether that be in thought, word, or deed. We need to be exhilarated always with her love. We need to fulfill what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1-3 about doing our duty as a husband in our conjugal relationship with our wife. We need to meet her needs and she needs to meet ours so that we are fortifying ourselves. We're on the alert against things sexual. So prevalent in our day, it, it needs to be said. And thirdly, we need to be on the alert with things physical and financial. Physical and financial. You say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, physically, we need to be on the alert so that we might be able to work. That's what leaders do. They work for their families. Genesis 1.28, all the way back in the creation account, subdue the earth, God says, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over, the, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And even when sin entered our world through our first parents and even though the earth was cursed God still told us even in the midst of the curse in toil you will eat of the earth all the days of your life by the sweat of your face you will eat bread Genesis 3 we need to work we need to work hard you know some of us aren't leading well in that area now it is true that that might not be as much of a problem in our culture. In fact, it may be the problem in the other direction. Uh, men work to such a degree that they're neglecting things spiritual. And maybe because they're working in that way so hard and in so many other tempting environments, they're not even watching themselves in all things sexual. We need to make sure that we're working hard, but we do not need to overwork. We need to balance ourselves with the command to subdue the earth and to toil by the sweat of your brow to make sure that your family is taken care of financially but not at the expense of all things spiritual. Did you know that in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, there is implied three things that a husband has as an obligation to his wife. He's obligated to provide food. Secondly, he's obligated to provide clothing and thirdly, he's obligated to provide a conjugal relationship with his wife. And that's even if polygamy is there. That's even if an Old Testament person would have gone out after another woman. He is still to provide for that first one the food and the clothing and the conjugal relationships because that is a part of the warp and woof of what it means to be 
on the alert for things physical and financial. And did you know that the New Testament is very, very strong about men and their demand by God to work with their hands and to make sure that their family is supported. You remember 1 Timothy 5.8? It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, there's that word provider, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What a statement. That's incredible. If a man does not provide financially... If he's not there physically for his wife and his children, even his extended family, the Bible says that he's worse than an unbeliever. What does that mean? Well, even some unbelievers do that. Even they provide food and clothing and conjugal relationships. Even they are involved in such things. And if we as the household of faith aren't doing that, we're worse than an unbeliever. We've denied the faith. Strong language. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Boy, wouldn't that be an interesting thing if all the people who were refusing to work were not allowed to eat? How long do you think they would be out of work? He says, we even hear that some among you, this was in the church, are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. No such person he says, should do that. We command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. We have to be on the alert for things spiritual, sexual, and financial and physical. That's what it means to be on the alert. Number two, Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the in the faith. That's imperative number two. That's a command in a word to be a teacher. A teacher. He is first to be a provider. He provides the eyes and ears of his family to help them along in all things spiritual and sexual and physical and financial. And he is also a leader who never wavers from the truth. He knows the truth and he's teaching the truth because he's standing firm in the faith. Histe me, to stand, to stand fast. This means that you are leading your family in the understanding of truth. You say, how does that flesh out? Well, it's not simply leading your family in Bible reading, but it's actively, systematically imparting to them the truth of God and His ways. It's leading them doctrinally. Doctrinally. Now, recently, the elders have been discussing how Pastor James Henrich will be moving from the children's area over to the adult area and some administration and outreach. And we've been talking and thinking and praying much about what the children's ministry is to look like as we look for another man. And we've all agreed that what we need to do is we need to see that position as more of a family ministries with children devoting through that pastor an opportunity for men to be better leaders in their homes and with their children. In fact, we're even going to rename it Pastor to Family Ministries with Children. And we're going to make sure that that man leads husbands and fathers in the way that they should go. You know, it's one thing to provide programs and ministries and opportunities here at the church for your children. That's good. We want to do that. We are committed to that. But we, won't, we don't want to overdo that and take away the responsibility of the Christian husband and father that he is commanded to have in his own home. And it's so very easy to do that. 
It's so very easy to allow the church to be the one to come alongside and for the Christian husband and father to fall by the wayside. You have Awana on Wednesday. You have Sunday school on Sunday morning. You have all kinds of opportunities for your children to be involved. You have vacation Bible school. You have all kinds of things like that. But we could so program our ministry that a Christian husband could come to the place where he's not really leading his wife or his children in things doctrinal. You know, men, when we have our doctrine and devotion on Friday mornings, you ought to take that lesson that you go over that day and sometime before you meet again in that Friday morning setting, you ought to share that with your wife. You say, oh, she's not interested in, in those doctrinal discussions. Have you ever asked her? Have you ever asked her if she wants to know doctrine? It's your responsibility to teach it to her. You say, how can I practically see this work out? Well, if we're standing in the faith, firmly planted, I believe, number one, your responsibility is to pass on the truth to the next generation. What does it actually mean to stand firm in the faith? I mean, if Paul were to say that to me today, Lance, stand firm in the faith, I'd say, Paul, what does that look like? And he'd say, you have the responsibility to stand firm because you have the responsibility to pass the truth on to the next generation. And that's your home primarily. You remember Deuteronomy 6? It tells us as fathers and even grandfathers, interestingly enough, to their grandsons that we ought to take the truth and pass it on. We ought to take the truth and pass it on. You remember Joshua's words in Joshua 24, 15? He says, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. You know the context of that verse? Joshua is saying, I will not choose to follow false gods. If you want to follow Baal, go ahead. As for me, we'll follow the Lord, the true God. He was making a bold statement. I'm the leader of my home and my responsibility is to stand firm in the faith so that I might pass the truth on to the next generation. Standing firm in the faith also means that you're standing firm in order to produce spiritual maturity in your home. In order to produce spiritual maturity in your home. Remember the injunction of Paul in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why? Why is that so important? Because Paul said two chapters earlier, as a result of really responding to the truth, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I told you it's a war. It's a war. It's a spiritual battle zone. And the hearts and minds of your wife and your children are at stake. This is an opportunity for us to stand firm and for you to be the spiritual mature one and then lead your family also in spiritual maturity. And I love this. Spiritual maturity will then lead me to stand firm in emulating Jesus Christ Himself. I will be so mature that I will be likened unto Jesus Christ in my home. You say, what a challenge. Well, didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am also of Christ. Oh my. Paul was actually saying about himself, 
I want you to follow me because I am a follower of Christ. Be a mimetes, be a mimic of Christ, be a mimic of me, and you'll be mimics of one and the same. Incredible. Standing firm means that you imitate Christ to your wife so that they might know what godliness looks like. You know, that's why, frankly, men, we've been given the teaching gift of the church. Men have been given the teaching gift in the church so that we might teach in the home and in the church. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 14? Verse 34 says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own pastor. Is that what it says? Does it say that? No. It says, let them ask who? Their own husbands. And where does it say they should ask them? At home. That means, men, that we must be the repository of truth for our wives. We need to know the truth so that when they come home and they ask us to clarify things, we will have the answer. Or at least if we don't have the answer readily, we can say to them, I don't know exactly, but I'm going to study to find out. I'll get back to you. And then we get back to them for that answer. They look to us so that we might teach them the truth. And we never waver from the truth. Imperative number three. Number three. And really you could even combine three and four because they're so closely linked. He says, a leader acts like a man. A leader acts like a man. And fourthly, a leader is a man of strength. He's a man of strength. And you know, when you read this particular phrase, Paul saying, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. I don't know about you, but my first question is, well, how do men act? If, if you're telling me to act like a man, my first question is, well, how does a man act? Well, he acts by that fourth imperative. He is strong. He's courageous. That little phrase there, act like men, is only one word in the Greek text. Andridzomai. And it means this. Play the man. Literally. Play the man. Play the role of a man. In other words, be manly. Be strong. Be courageous. In antiquity, it was a call for a man to have courage in the face of great danger. It was to conduct yourself in a manly or a courageous way. I mean, the two were so linked together that if you said someone had courage, someone would say they're manly. And if you said someone was manly, that automatically meant they were a man of courage, of great strength. A leader, in a word, is a protector. He's a provider. He's on the alert. He's a teacher because he stands firm in the faith and he is a protector of his family. He's a man. He's a strong man. He's a courageous man. Oh, and I love this. This particular phrase is in the middle voice and it means this. Show yourselves to be men. By the, by the very nature of who you are as a masculine person, show yourselves to be men. Be a man. Be strong. You say, what does that look like? Two things. One, 
A man protects his wife and children by showing them how to trust God. You say, I wouldn't have thought of that necessarily. I might have assumed that all of your statements about being strong and courageous and acting like a man meant physical. Well, it certainly does mean that, but it means much more than that. You see, being a man is not just being physically able to overpower someone, whether it's your wife or children or someone else. Being a a real man, being a true man is a person who is able in the midst of great trial and test, able to trust God. He's able to trust the Word of the living God. This is so fascinating. This phrase, act like men, this one word, is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's not inspired, but it was so close to the writing of the Old Testament that it's very authoritative. It's what those in that early time frame believed that the Old Testament writers were really desiring to say. And when I looked at the Septuagint this week, I found that that word, andridzomai, which only appears in the New Testament in this verse in 1 Corinthians 16, is used actually in Psalm 31. You might even look there, it's just incredible. Psalm 31, because it defines for us what it means to be a man. You want to know what the Bible says being a man is all about? Psalm 31, 24 tells us. It says, be strong. And I wish they would have translated it in the New American Standard for what that word is and that Septuagint. Act like a man. Act like a man and let your heart take courage. All you who hope or wait or trust in the Lord. You see, that's a real man. A real man is a person who trusts God. He needs to trust God because his wife and his family is looking to him to trust God. They're looking to him. He's the sentinel. He's the one on guard. He's the one at the post. He's the one who says, I'm going to teach you in the good and right way. He's the one who's standing there with his eyes wide open. And he says, now family, one thing I want you to know beyond all other things is that no matter what happens in our life, no matter what tragedies may befall us, no matter what temptations, no matter what tests we undergo, I want you to know one thing. I am going to leave this family in a trust of the promises of the living God of heaven. We are going to make sure that this family knows what it means to trust the living God. We're going to to trust that what He says in His Word is true and that He's going to perform that work in us. The same idea is listed in Psalm 27, just a couple of Psalms to the left in your Bible. Psalm 27, 14. Trust the Lord or wait for the Lord or hope in the Lord. Be strong. Act like a man and take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That's what a real man does. He's not a wimp. He doesn't vacillate. He's not Casper Milk Toast. He's a person who says, even though this is the supreme test of my life, I'm not going to yield because it is for the sake of my family. It's for the sake of my wife. She needs to see a man who's trusting in God. Because when she sees a man who's trusting in God, she has all the opportunity to trust in God herself. 
I think it means a second thing, this act like a man and be strong. It means a man protects his wife and children by courageously following God's word and his will. It means that a man protects his wife and children by courageously following God's word and his will. This same kind of phrase about being strong and being courageous, just like Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16 and in those psalm passages, is used also in the Joshua 1 account. I know you're familiar with it. Joshua 1.6. This is, this is Moses and he's charging Joshua. I mean, this is like a, a son in the faith and Moses is is standing firm and he's passing on this truth to the next generation. And he says, Joshua, listen to me. Be strong and courageous, verse 6. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Act like a man. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And that is the Lord saying, just look at Moses and I'm speaking through him to you and now I'm speaking directly to you myself. And Joshua might shudder to think about the responsibility and lest he do that, God says, and I've given you a book. I've given you a road map. I've given you the book of all books. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's that trusting God. I trust God and I trust His book. I'm going to be a man. He's not through. Verse 14. Your wives, your little ones, there it is right in the context of a husband to a wife and to a family, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but you shall cross before your brothers in battle array, all you valiant warriors, and shall help them. And they answered Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Same thing is said in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong. Be courageous. That's what it means to be a man. I love what Joab said in 2 Samuel 10.12. Listen. Be strong. And let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in His sight. See, we're going to trust God and we're going to trust that God is going to do what is good in His sight. But as for us, our responsibility, men, is to be strong and courageous for the sake of our people. Listen. We have to be strong and courageous, my friends, because the world is at our heels and the church is weak, impotent. We must be strong. 
Are you acting like men in your home? Are you taking the leadership there? Remember, you are the leader of your home if you're the man. Whether that be good leadership or bad leadership, whether that be present and active leadership or absent leadership. Surely Douglas Wilson in his book Reforming Marriage is right when he says, Paul most emphatically does not say that husbands ought to be the heads of their wives. He says they are. Nowhere is the husband commanded to be a head to his wife. This is because he already is the head of his wife by the very nature of marriage. If he does not love her, he is a poor head, but a head nonetheless. Because the husband is the head of the wife, he finds himself in a position of inescapable leadership. He cannot successfully refuse to lead. If he attempts to abdicate in some way, he may, through his rebellion, lead poorly. But no matter what he does or where he goes, he does so as the head of his wife. This is how God designed marriage. He has created us as male and female in such a way as to ensure that men will always be dominant in marriage. If the husband is godly, then the dominance will not be harsh. It will be characterized by the same self-sacrificial love demonstrated by our Lord. And then he uses the word, the Latin word dominus, which means at the cross. If a husband tries to run away from his headship, that abdication will dominate the home. If he catches a plane to the other side of the country and stays there, he will dominate, dominate in and by his absence. How many children have grown up in a home dominated by the empty chair at the table? If the marriage is one in which the wife wears the pants, the wimpiness of the husband is the most obvious thing about the marriage, creating a miserable marriage and home. His abdication dominates. The dominance of the husband is a fact. The only choice we have in this regard concerns whether that dominance will be a loving and constructive dominion or hateful and destructive tyranny. And then he ends by saying, arguing with the fact of the husband's headship in the home is like jumping off a cliff in order to quarrel with the law of gravity. Marshal the arguments on the way down however one likes he will eventually find himself refuted in a messy way. And so it is with the Christian husband who is a leader. And lastly, imperative number five. It all goes back to love. He's a provider. He's a teacher. He's a protector. And he's a lover. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. You see how it goes full circle right back to the top of our three-point outline? Lover, learner, leader. You go from a lover as Christ loved His church to a learner understanding your wife in a biblical way to a leader who knows that he's to be on the alert, standing firm in the faith, acting like a man, being strong, and let all that he's doing be done in love, which takes us right back to being a lover. Beautiful. Paul is saying, look, I command you to be a provider. That means be on the alert. I command you to be a teacher. Stand firm in the faith. I command you to be a protector. Act like men. Be strong. But I want you to do all of it in love. I want you to be a lover. Strength that shows itself in love. There are men who love to rule. But the rule men is love. 
Nothing we do in our leadership should be outside the scope of love. The world says these days that they're looking for role models. Have you heard that lately? Everybody's talking, especially in the sports world. Some of them don't want that to be applied to them like a Charles Barkley type who throws men out of a glass window because someone looks at him crossly. Or, heaven forbid, Dennis Rodman. My goodness. Who knows what he is? Or you might hear someone saying, I'm looking for a real man. Well, let me tell you, apart from the dynamic of the Christian life, there will be no such role model. There will be no such thing as a real man. Apart from your love for Christ and your love for your wife and family, we can't know what being a real man is. In their book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim said these words, 70% of Americans now say that America has no more heroes. Why are there no heroes today? There are no heroes because we have ceased to believe in anything strongly enough to be impressed by its attainment. He says, hey, we don't have any heroes today because nobody believes in anything strongly enough so that when someone attains such a goal, we yawn. We don't say they're a hero. We don't call them a real man. We just do nothing. If you want the world to see what a true role model is, a true and real man, ask him if he's a Christian. And if he's a Christian, he's on his way to being a real man because he trusts in his God and he leads his family. And if he's on his way to being a provider and a teacher and a protector and a lover for his wife and his children, and if he does those things for the glory of God and for the sake of his home, then he's acting like a real man should act. Men, let's show the world how to act. Let's pray together. Father, you have most certainly challenged my own heart. If not those of us in attendance as men, you've challenged me to think through what it means to lead my own family. To act like a real man. Father, forgive me for those things for which I have allowed into my home. I've not been on the alert for things spiritual or sexual or physical or financial. Father, don't allow any word, any phrase, any thinking, any theology, any idealism come to my family without us discussing it and its implications. Let me be the provider of the eyes and ears of my family. Allow me to be a teacher, a teacher of truth. Making sure that we stand firm. That we pass it on to the next generation. That we're showing ourselves as spiritually growing and maturing. And that we ultimately will look like Christ who died for His bride. Let us be a protector to be manly and mighty.
to know what it means to trust God and to follow Your Word courageously and to do it all in love. Father, we know that love and strength are not mutually exclusive. Now, someone who's weak is not necessarily, not, not necessarily a lover and someone who's a lover is not necessarily not strong. We need strength in love. May we do so because You are most pleased when we are this way. We confess these things to You and seek Your forgiveness and ask that through this series, even as we discuss things in our care groups tonight, that You would mold and shape us into being those men who love their wives, learning about them, and leading them properly. We ask that You do it by Your Spirit as we follow Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.